welcome to our uh, panel here on the very interesting and highly pertinent subject of sanctions. Uh, my name is Joe Hughes. I'm the chairman of the managers of the American P&I Club. Um, I have had the pleasure on several occasions in the past to participate at Capital Link conferences. It's absolutely marvelous to see so many people back here again at the Metropolitan Club in person. Uh, and I'm sure we'll enjoy a very interesting panel today where we are delighted to have with us um, Tanner Johnson, who is the Trade Policy Team Lead, Office of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, International Trade Administration of the United States Department of Commerce. Uh, he's there, as you can see from the uh, name card. Um, you can read his very uh, considerable uh, CV in his resume in the um, in the uh, material for the uh, occasion. So I, I won't go into detail now because I know that there are going to be a lot of questions arising from this. So we're going to have um, the opportunity of um, asking them later on, and we don't want to we want to have as much time available, I suggest, as we can. Um, and Michael Lieberman, who is the Assistant Director for Enforcement at the Office of Foreign Assets Control of the United States Department of the Treasury. Uh, originally, Jen Chalmers of the State Department was due to participate, but unfortunately, Jen hurt her back at the end of last week and was indisposed as a result for today's event. Um, but Michael, who I think is also speaking on another panel um, a little later, has very kindly agreed to come and address us as part of the panel today. Um, I'm reminded, actually, of uh, the English poet Alexander Pope, who made a tribute to Isaac Newton many, many years ago when he wrote, Nature's and nature's laws stood cloaked in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Well, now we have sanctions and sanctions laws stood, clo stood cloaked in night. Capital Links said, let Tanner and Michael explain them, and all will be light, ladies and gentlemen, I promise you at the end of this. Um, I'm going, to ask, I'm going to ask some fairly basic questions to begin with of um, Tanner and Michael. Um, and uh, to, to that extent, therefore, perhaps I can begin. And also, would you mind if I sat down rather than stood here uh, for the remainder of, of this after I... And we can go on from there. Um, I think most of us would be very interested to know um, what role does each of your departments play um, in the formulation of sanctions policy? And, Michael, what is OFAC's approach um, as a central point of this to the design, enforcement, and or the implementation of sanctions. And if you're prepared to comment perhaps a little later, what does the State Department do in this particular context? So, um, you know, in Jen's absence. So perhaps we could start there. And Tanner, would you like to start with that? I can. Thank you. I, I can certainly start. Uh, I, I would probably say that I represent the International Trade Administration at the Commerce Department. And so our role is typically working with our exporters that are looking to um, work overseas and ship their goods and services to you know, places like, like Russia. So um, we do not administer sanctions or export controls, but we work with our companies that are working in markets that might have those sanctions or export controls imposed upon them, such as Russia. Um, really, uh, Treasury, OFAC, and State are the... Uh, the lead on this within the U.S. government interagency. I will mention before uh, Michael takes over here, though, uh, our sister sub-agency, the Bureau of Industry and Security, 
um, are at the Commerce Department. They do administer and implement the export controls uh, that have been um, uh, expanded in scope in, uh, after the February 24th invasion. Um, and uh, they, they do play an important role in uh, the restrictions on trade with Russia. They well, Michael. <laughs> thank you, and uh, thank you, Joe, and thank you all for having me here today. Uh, I can't promise any Newtonian insight, but I uh, <laughs> hope to maybe clear the fog just a, a little bit. So, uh, as Tanner uh, mentioned, the Treasury Department really plays a lead role in the development and formulation of our sanctions and the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which I'm representing here today, in which in which I lead the uh, Office of Enforcement, um, administers and, and enforces U.S. sanctions. Um, I can talk a little bit about our role in developing sanctions programs and policy writ large, and I might begin with commending to you our uh, Treasury Sanctions Review, which we completed in October of last year, and that really lays out the Treasury Department's and really the USG's approach more broadly to the development of sanctions, and it emphasizes the importance of having very clear objectives, of minimizing collateral consequences on third parties, of working closely with our allies and working to ensure that um, there is a common approach in terms of developing uh, our sanctions, uh, as well as a number of different other uh, findings and conclusions, all of which have really shaped our approach to uh, the development, I think, of the uh, probably most interesting issue of the day uh, for, for this audience, uh, which is our uh, Russia, Russia sanctions. Um, where we've worked very closely with the State Department uh, and with BIS, as Tanner mentioned, uh, as well as other interagency colleagues and international partners uh, to develop really one of the more um, complex uh, and far-reaching and, um, and significant uh, sanctions regimes, perhaps the most, uh, that have ever been imposed given the size of Russia's economy and its role in the uh, global energy market. Um, you did mention uh, uh, discussing our approach to uh, enforcement, and I, maybe I will just take a minute on that because um, what, what I would like to just emphasize uh, in that respect is that we really look at our approach to compliance enforcement as one that's a cooperative one with industry. Um, we try to issue as much guidance as we can uh, to industry. Industry really is on the front lines uh, of compliance, um, and so and that is, of course, key to furthering the objectives of all of our sanctions programs. So not that we outsource it exactly, but uh, we, of course, rely very much on the private sector uh, to ensure that bad actors aren't getting goods that they're not supposed to have uh, and that they are cut out from the global economic and financial system. Um, and so to that end, we issue as much guidance as possible. In the case of Russia, we issued over 100 new FAQs, which are a form of guidance. We revised uh, about another 100. Um, we issued, I believe, uh, upward, upward towards maybe 50 or so general licenses in response to feedback from industry and anticipating concerns that industry might have with respect to how the sanctions would be implemented and complied with. Um, we've issued fact sheets and then uh, any number of specific licenses as well as um, specific responses to inquiries received, we've received through our hotline, which is um, staffed uh, uh, actively and which uh, I believe we responded to maybe 1,300 or so inquiries already on, on Russia um, since the invasion. Um, and just one last point with respect to enforcement. You know, our approach to enforcement is it's not to play gotcha. We look at our enforcement actions really as a key element of our broader efforts to promote compliance. 
And so while OFAC sanctions are strict liability, which means that you don't have to have intended or had reason to know to commit a violation, technically speaking, we're guided by the enforcement guidelines, um, which, we, which are part of our, our regulations, in administering and enforcing the sanctions. And those guidelines take into account a number of factors that allow us to calibrate our enforcement response as appropriate to the potential uh, violation there. And so out of you know, any, say, 100 uh, potential violations that, that we see, 95% of those are probably disposed of with uh, non-public, non meaning no penalty uh, action, uh, no action letter or a cautionary letter of some sort. And the penalty actions that we issue really represent cases where there was real reason to know, where there was some sort of... Um, um, uh, you know, reckless activity, uh, and where we really want to send a message to a particular sector, industry, or type of practice that it's important to underscore um, the, the compliance lessons learned, basically, from that case. And if you look at our web posts, uh, you'll see some details uh, with respect to that. So I'll stop there, um, but I did just want to lay that out for, for this audience. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. Well, I can say uh, from the marine insurance point of view, particularly that uh, within the P&I sector, there has been a, a great deal of, of, of collaboration over the years and um, interface between OFAC and the international group of P&I clubs, of course, because um, you know, marine insurance, particularly liability insurance, is pretty key to the manner in which trade is conducted, particularly obviously by sea, and that has been a, a key factor, I think, in, um, in, in the manner in which uh, authorities, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world, have seen uh, the implementation of sanctions as being quite effective. In terms of the outreach, which... Um, uh, which Michael mentioned, Tanner. I mean, what in practice do you do at Commerce in regard to talking to companies? Do you outreach to them? Do, you, do, do, do they talk to you through lobbying groups? Or how does that work particularly? So uh, I would probably outline our network. I mean, when we look at the commercial service, which is part of the International Trade Administration, we're talking about a worldwide network of about 70 offices overseas. And then you have a domestic network on top of that that's about 110 offices, um, several of which are in the New York City area. And so we have, uh, it serves as a feeder of sorts on the domestic side, uh, companies that are doing business in Russia, maybe wondering, can I continue doing business in Russia, or maybe I need to wind down or reduce my business in Russia, and how do I do that, and how do I find the information? And so we have this uh, feeder of, of uh, our 110 domestic network offices that uh, bring uh, you know these uh, consultation opportunities to us at headquarters, uh, Commerce headquarters in Washington. And so we work very closely with them. We also work with the business associations. So that would be um, regional business associations like the U.S.-Russia Business Council, uh, AmCham, uh, American Chamber of Commerce in Russia, um, also with uh, uh, certain uh, uh, industry sector associations that might have uh, members with uh, significant business interests in, in, in the Russian Federation. And so there's a whole host of ways that we, we bring them in. And what we try to do is not to speak for our colleagues at OFAC. That would be, we always recommend, if you have questions for BIS and you have questions for the Treasury and OFAC, you should reach out to them and ask them directly. But the reality is, is that the tempo and the scope of what has happened since February 
it, it can be likened really to a fire hose. Mm-hmm. On the treasury side, and Michael, if I overstep my bounds, please, uh, please. <laughs> knock me down here. Um, you know, incredible numbers of designations being made from treasury since the February invasion. BIS has mirrored that, our, our sister agency in commerce, with their list of concern. And so really figuring out the questions of due diligence, what you can and can't do in Russia has really become infinitely more complex very, very quickly. And so practically, what do we do? We try to help our exporters figure out where are the resources that they can use to make start considering those decisions, perhaps even making some of those decisions. Some are a little bit more black and white than others. And then also, uh, helping them figure out who exactly they should be talking to in certain cases. Uh, there's uh, questions. I'm sure everybody is uh, familiar with the um, uh, port ban here in the United States that came into effect in April. There were a whole uh, on Russian-operated, owned vessels. There were a whole host of questions that we were uh, had that came in on that. Uh, that's not really. Um, uh, OFAC or BIS, although that you know, certainly there's a consultative process and other you know work streams that are going on there, but you know there's a whole host of federal agencies for any given situation and any given question that you might need to pull uh, expertise from, and so we serve a bit of that coordinating role uh, for our companies, uh, utilizing those uh, channels, and then obviously uh, we've got our. Um, intake from elsewhere. We have companies that find us via other means, um, be that online or, or elsewhere. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Tanner. Perhaps I can direct this question to Michael. Once the sanctions um, have been implemented, um, how, how does OFAC or any of the, uh, the great departments of, of government here in the United States actually see what the effects are and, and how do they you know, calibrate them against intentions? So. Sure. Well, I think there are a number of lenses that we use to look at the effects of the sanctions. One, of course, is through the objectives of the sanctions program. What effect is it having on the target of the sanctions? the case of Russia, is the Russian government suffering anything from the deprivation of its access to the global financial system, key technologies that have been prohibited, uh, are its companies suffering the designations, are they having any impact on the ability of those companies to operate? That's one lens. Another lens is through the lens of of industry. Again, um, are they finding it relatively uh, bearable to comply with the sanctions? Do they understand their scope? Do they understand the exceptions, the nuances? Because they're not broad sanctions. They are very carefully calibrated to allow for things like the energy trade, for things like humanitarian goods, for things like agriculture. Um, And so we look very closely at what industry is saying. And so, you know, we really appreciate the efforts of our colleagues at the Commerce Department to uh, help channel inquiries uh, to us to that end. And then, of course, we have a number of means that um, we, we use uh, to, to do all of that. Uh, we have economists at the Treasury Department. Uh, who knew? Um, just uh, it's not just sanctions, obviously. Um, but they help us understand sort of the macroeconomic implications. Of course, our intelligence uh, agencies uh, assist us to understand uh, the effects of our sanctions and our measures, and, um, and of course, diplomatic channels. Um, how is it affecting governments in uh, affected countries and partner countries? Um, and of course, you know, what 
channels of evasion are we seeing. So it's something that we pay very close attention to uh, and that we use actively to calibrate our sanctions accordingly. As I mentioned, we issued over 100 new FAQs. So many of those were a result of that sort of surveillance and monitoring. And it, yeah, and I just might add, I mean, it might be good, too, just to put frame a little context around, you know, what are the effects of these sanctions. Sure. I mean, we have the trade numbers through July. Um, and if you look at the U.S. exports to Russia, you know, if you look at 2021, it was a top 40 export market. The uh, stats show $6.4 billion in U.S. exports to Russia. If you look at through July, uh, year to date, uh, it's down about 65%. Mm. And the reality is that that's probably covering up a, a bigger fall because January and February's numbers were more typical uh, in, ter in terms of volume. You know, we're talking in the range of, you know, four or $500 million a month. That, after February, has settled down into a range of about 70 to $100 million worth of U.S. exports a month, depending on the... You know, so there's, I mean, you expect a lag necessarily. What typically in, in the sanctions domain would that lag usually be, you know, including Russia, Venezuela, Iran, and the rest, would you say? Sure. Well, it really depends on the specific mm -hmm. measure. I think with respect to certain prohibitions on, on technologies, you can see that turn off relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the effects that we see, those certainly have a lag. And, and the president has noted this. I mean, he spoke of having an impact on Russia's economy uh, for years to come. That's been the case since 2014. That's the case across all of our sanctions programs. The sanctions aren't a, a light switch. Uh, in many respects, they, they really are a, more of a dimmer. Um, you know, we try to give industry time to wind down uh, their activities in a, a rational way um, as well, which can increase the timeline of impact. Um, but certainly, if you look at it sort of macroeconomically, uh, the impacts, while acute on Russia, uh, and certainly uh, felt um, since February, uh, I think are only going to accrue more and more over time as they continue to uh, lack financing, new investments, uh, continue to not be avail uh, able to avail themselves of services um, from, from many U.S. companies in key sectors uh, as they're um, cut off from advanced semiconductors and other technologies that BIS enforces. Um, as they run out of their stockpiles, uh, those are going to continue to uh, accumulate those those impacts. So there's, I would say there's a there's not a, a lag in the sense that it takes some time and then there's a drop off, but it's a continual deprivation that um, you know ultimately you know leads hopefully to a a Russia that's less able to uh, wage the kind of aggression that we've seen. I, I would probably add one other uh, small comment to that. There's another uh, element that will affect. Uh, trade to Russia, and I, I think it, you know, we call it self-sanctioning, and that's essentially companies that don't want to take the risk, and we've been hearing this uh, from our companies pretty continually since February, uh, especially, you know, I reference this being similar to a fire hose. I mean, companies simply don't have the, uh, in, in a lot of cases, just say, okay, well, this, this is, things are flying too fast, and we need some time to figure this out, so they just pass on Russia more generally. We're hearing this from uh, U.S. banks. I mean, you know, we're all familiar with the financial sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, but there's a flip side to that. There's U.S. banks that are saying, we're not sure. 
80% by value of the sector is sanctioned or more, and we're just going to make a choice to not do business with Russia more generally. That's also what we're hearing in the freight forwarder arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're simply saying transshipment, that's a, you know uh, something that we're worried about. Uh, there's other issues. Um, they're simply walking away. And so it's something that you're not going to find on Commerce's websites or Treasury's websites or BIS. You're not going to see it. But it's very actual, and we hear it continually. Companies are saying the risk is too high and they're simply walking away. And so I think that's another downward pressure that might make itself... I think that's absolutely right, actually, Ken. I mean, we see this in the marine insurance space as well over the last several months in regard to Russian business. Um, across the entirety of it, not just in pure marine insurance, but also in the attitude of reinsurance, of course, were a very important, important component of... I might uh, just make a comment to, to that, um, because absolutely it is something that we see, um, and certainly uh, understandable. Uh, at the same time, I do just want to emphasize that you know activity that is not specifically sanctioned is permissible. And while in practice that is much greater than that sounds, you know, the reason why that the reason why we accept certain activities uh, is very much because we want to see it continue. Now, I do appreciate that we do ratchet up sanctions over time. What's permissible today might not be permissible tomorrow. You can't just turn off your business uh, like a light switch uh, either. Um, but at the same time, especially with respect to key commodities um, with global imports, energy, food, etc., you know, we really do try to clarify as much as possible and to emphasize as much as possible the permissibility of the activity that enables that to flow. We don't want to see... Uh, global food prices spike. We don't want to see global energy prices spike. And so I hope that at least that you know provides some guidance to industry when it comes to deciding what risks to take on and which risks uh, to uh, begin to, to shed. And as a matter of carry on. I, I, I would just, you know, very high on my list of recommendations to any company that I speak to that wants the information, go to the uh, Treasury OFAC website. All of those things are readily available there. All the information on general licenses, uh, the updated, uh, frequently asked questions, um, there's recent actions. Uh, re- there's really just a treasure trove of information on, on all of this. We very highly recommended at Commerce. And, and, and the last point, thank you, Tanner, and, the, and the, the last point I would just make is that, you know, with respect to the fear that, you know, continuing to engage in a particular activity that becomes prohibited, um, is going to land you in hot water. That's certainly something that we take into account and is specifically mentioned in our enforcement guidelines. We look at how recently the activity became prohibited. And if it's something that, you know, you, you have something on a ship and uh, we issue a prohibition against it and, uh, you know, the next day it arrives in Moscow, that's not something we're going to um, take an aggressive approach towards. Um, and, you know, I think it's worth underscoring, uh, again, in the, in the not playing gotcha uh, lens through which we view our enforcement uh, mandate, um, you know, we, we take into account you know how long those sanctions have been in place, and has industry really had, has a particular business really had a reasonable time to comply? Yes, I, I suppose you know I was going to ask you the question: What practical advice would you give to 
um, uh, th those who are concerned with these sanctions, particularly from the maritime sector. And I suppose the thing is, keep yourself very, very well informed, and don't be backward in coming forward to ask questions of, you know, commerce or OFAC where you feel that you need further guidance. And you're, I mean, you, you, you make a point, I, I would hope, of being approachable in that regard. So you make a point, I would hope, of being approachable um, in that regard. Absolutely, yeah. And events like this are a key opportunity for us to engage with industry and to hear your concerns and feedback. I don't know if we'll have time for some Q&A, but I certainly would welcome that. Um, we have an uh, a email address, um, OFAC underscore feedback at churchry.gov that uh, you can write to for specific questions, um, but we all, and we also engage actively with, uh, with industry associations. And so we very much uh, value and place a premium on our ability to understand uh, what industry is actually experiencing and um, try to have an open door as much as possible. Absolutely. Thank you. What, what do you, again, looking into the crystal ball, and of course much of this will depend upon what geopolitical events occur over the months to come. Things can change very quickly, of course, but do you anticipate that the landscape of sanctions will become more complicated over the near to medium term? <laughs> or is that a silly question, too? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid the only uh, <laughs> plausible answer the is, is yes. Yes, that would be the question, question of Kremlin, I guess, yes. Um, I, our threats, the threats that we face uh, are evolving, uh, technology is advancing, yes. our adversaries are adapting, um, and I think that the Russia regime is an example of, uh, you know, a, a particularly complex one. Um, and so while it can be difficult to predict uh, exactly how it will evolve, I, I think the world is getting more complex, and uh, the United States is going to continue to try to uh, adapt itself. And so, sanctions being a key tool are going to continue to uh, adapt and evolve um, in keeping with that. I would just say, though, at the same time, that the approach to compliance, mm -hmm. I think, the pillars of compliance, and this is laid out in our 2019 compliance commitments, which I would commend to anyone interested, um, those fundamentals really, I think, will remain the same. And those fundamentals are our management commitment to compliance, making sure that that is flowed down to your organization. It is um, a risk assessment, really understanding the risks that your company faces, who are your customers, what are your supply chains, where are, your, where are you operating. Risks, doesn't look, risks don't look similar, of course, across sectors, across companies, uh, even in the same sector. Uh, internal controls, do you have those in place? Uh, are you training your people? Uh, and are you conducting testing and auditing to make sure that those are going to operate? Those fundamentals, I think, will remain in place and I think are a guide to adapting to the complexity that is uh, sure to just increase. I would, yeah, please. I, I, yeah. I would just add one, I think it relates to it, but I mean, really since February, with the increased numbers of designations and uh, increased the uh, numbers on the BIS list over with the, the commerce. You know, really what we've been um, expressing to our companies is that part of that due diligence really, really needs to start being transactional in nature. It can, you know, if you look at before February and before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, if you knew who you were working with and you would check them out, there was a reasonably, that, that was a reasonable assumption to say, well, that's a, a safe, potentially a safe line of business for us to pursue. I, I think at this point, given 
I mean, all, it's not maybe quite exponential, but the, the growth in designations and the growth in the number of industry sectors that are covered by those and the leading business figures in Russia that, are, uh, that have been designated. I, I think that really um, what we're telling our companies is uh, your due diligence, if you want to do business in Russia, uh, you, you want to consider making that transactional. Mm. Interesting. I mean, and, and I think it goes without saying how adept Russia is at evading sanctions. They've had 70 years of practice, at least, under COCOM, export controls. And, um, of course, their oligarchs have been um, uh, operating in, in the West uh, actively uh, for, for many decades. And so they do have uh, a lot of uh, experience. And so just a, a plug for the importance of due diligence um, transactionally and, and with respect to customers at the same time. Thank you. Well, we yes, we started a little late, but I'm sure we'll have a little time for questions. Yes, sir. You'll have Thank one. you, Joe. Michael, um, a quick question. Does, does um, the agency have a policy or a point of view uh, with respect to foreign blocking statutes, like those uh, in the EU, Germany, UK, and soon in China, where companies that may, on the one hand, um, be subject to OFAC regulations, on the other hand, are nationals of countries where there are blocking statutes. Yeah. Has, has OFAC dealt with that? We have, yes. Um, and I would just say that the uh, prohibitions on compliance with OFAC sanctions uh, probably won't come as a surprise. It doesn't relieve you of your obligation to comply with OFAC sanctions. And so we are sympathetic to companies that are caught in that uh, vice, if you will. Uh, two things I would just say is that, um, at least with respect to the EU blocking statute, um, once you get into the weeds of it, it's not quite as far-reaching as one might expect. Um, so I don't want to speak for the EU's laws or anything like that, um, but it's not a blanket prohibition against compliance uh, with U.S. sanctions regarding Iran or uh, Cuba, which are the main countries involved in that. Um, to appreciate that countries like China and Russia have also instituted counter sanctions of some sort. Um, what we would encourage companies to do who are caught in that kind of situation is to come into us, uh, maybe request a specific license where all the particulars of your particular situation can be addressed and assessed. Um, and there are circumstances in which we have granted authorization for companies um, who are going to face difficulty uh, complying with our sanctions because of uh, their other legal obligations abroad, uh, we have given some um, respite to them in that. I wouldn't say that that's something that we, we commonly do, um, but we're mindful of the situation and we're not trying to um, you know, uh, sort of mindlessly insist in all circumstances, uh, no matter what, that you have to, you have to comply with that sanctions. But the, the right approach then is to come in for a specific license. Yes, another question. You mentioned um, the adaptation of Russia in terms of circumventing sanctions. Could you perhaps give us a little color in terms of how you're adapting to uh, effectively track what is becoming much more sophisticated evasion tactics and you know, whether you think the industry is doing enough to actually fill in the gaps? Well, we certainly rely very much on industry to be apprised of developments and to identify things that look off um, if there's a new customer standing in for a previous customer, um, if there are shell companies, you know that's that's part of the standard due diligence, and we look to industry to try to feed that back to us. Um, 
we have a leads um, channel by which uh, industry can provide us with information that they see. Um, we're actively monitoring it across the range of the USG's capabilities, certainly. Um, and the, uh, we also tried to provide guidance um, with, with respect to that. So uh, I think a particular relevance perhaps to the maritime industry is the May 2020 uh, maritime uh, advisory that lays out in, in some detail uh, some of the practices that we've seen of concern, which I imagine are already familiar, I won't belabor them, but, um, and then some best practices to try to counter that. Our sister agency, FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, has issued an advisory on red flags regarding uh, financial sanctions evasion, um, and so we issue that. Uh, we have an FAQ on potential sanctions activity by the Russian Central Bank. And so we really try to arm industry as much as possible. Um, absolutely, though, if um, you know industry is seeing things that, that we should be paying more attention to, uh, we, are, uh, we are all ears. Um, and we do our best, again, uh, through a variety of, of means to monitor that and, and to forestall that. It strikes me that um, Michael and I should continue this conversation also later, but I, I would just mention that we, that international network that I mentioned earlier, that's our commercial officers, senior commercial officers, regional commercial officers scattered throughout Europe and Eurasia, are also uh, very much monitoring uh, yes. things like sanctions evasion through their day-to-day -day contacts with the leading U.S. companies that are in pretty much all of the markets, major markets in Europe and Eurasia. In Eurasia, we have offices in, in Kazakhstan, and in better times, we would have offices in Moscow and Kiev as well. Mm. Uh, but it's something that uh, uh, commerce, and, and obviously BIS, I don't want to speak for them, but the reality is, is they've been doing a great deal of outreach on uh, the export controls uh, side, of the, side of the house as well. Good. I think we have time for one more question, perhaps. Yeah, yes. uh, thank you. Um, as uh, the world is entering a uh, very cold, especially in Europe, it's going to be a very, very cold winter, uh, and a very hungry period as well, um, is there any thought to adjustment of sanctions uh, to uh, allow for humanitarian needs and so on? Yeah, well... Um, Humanitarian goods, uh, food, medicine, pharmaceutical products, uh, as well as energy, have been exempted from our sanctions from the very get-go by design. And so we are aware of some claims by Russia that our sanctions are impeding their ability to export grain. Needless to say, it is not our sanctions that are doing that. Um, but we are actively engaged in outreach with affected countries uh, throughout the world uh, to clarify very clearly uh, what our sanctions do and do not prohibit and the fact that they do not get in the way of that type of transaction to the extent that we have needed to provide uh, specific comfort to certain actors. Uh, we seek to do that. Uh, we issued a, um, a food security fact sheet as well recently that tries to elaborate on that. And so um, those are things that we uh, you know, recognize the need to continue to, to flow freely and we take uh, significant steps to, to try to assure industry that uh, they, they can continue to provide services and to provide those goods. Thank you. Just one final question, I think. Okay. 
This one works. Um, speaking for Berenberg, a European re regulated bank serving more than 400 maritime clients, just two observations or questions. One is um, adding to the complexity for companies to make decisions, but also for banks is the regime of uh, at least three UK, EU, and uh, US sanctions. So uh, what kind of exchange do you see between these three to align things and make it easier f uh, and, and, and have less, less complexity? Second uh, remark um, with regard to appreciating frequently asked questions and guidelines and press conferences on these things, it makes also adds to complexity in our observation for many clients uh, as you can't read every day 200 pages and look whether there's some, some new, uh, um, let's say, remarks in, in this. So these are two things from the practice where I would like to have your perspective on. Thank you. Sure. Uh, well, to the first question, I would say that we coordinate very closely with our EU and UK partners, active dialogues uh, on a near daily or weekly basis, and also in the lead-up to the sanctions. And I think that while there might be some nuances and distinctions between the various regimes, they do line up very, very cleanly uh, by and large. And so, um, you know, I know that navigating those distinctions can be significant for a particular company in a particular case. And if there are sort of issues that get people a little crossways, not figuring, not, that are difficult to comply with on both sides of the Atlantic, um, you know, we want to hear about that. So, you know, I'd, I'd welcome uh, your comments and, and feedback um, uh, to that effect uh, with respect to specific things. Um, you know, and again, we really do have an open door for those sorts of issues. We often do hear about it also from our EU and our UK counterparts from their companies as well. And so we try to channel that together and to have a, a regular uh, series of dialogues, which we, which we do. Um, to your second question about the FAQ, certainly, um, I would say that we do have a uh, sort of a listserv, which you can sign up for and uh, get an alert when a new FAQ is issued. And while, of course, um, you can't read 200 pages every day. I think the idea is that when an FAQ addresses a particular issue, that can be then hopefully incorporated into a compliance uh, program and, and practices and, and, and training so that it sort of sits as a discrete um, you know, set of guidance that can the company can use and sort of plug in and then it's part of the normal process is the idea. Good, okay, well many thanks indeed. Um, Michael and Turner, I think that was very illuminating. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for attending our panel. And um, once again, thank you. Let's hope it tries to remain relatively straightforward over the months ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was fantastic. Questions? So it's the actual Yes, we do have a lot of sort of 
when they clogged, for example, the United States company to violate our sanctions because they could tell the U.S. company that they were doing business with some sanctioned entity. And then the U.S. company was ready to convert to that business with a Taiwanese company to return to doing business with the sanctioned entity. That can land the Taiwanese company to be in trouble. But as a general matter, our sanctions apply to U.S. persons and to persons in the United States and not to foreign firms. Now, it can get a little trickier still, last point on this, because depending on the exact activity, there are certain sanctions that can apply to foreign firms that they will be cut off from the United States if they are really actively trying to help them and Yes, well, if there's, it depends. Sometimes they will have different so, so, so there are some exports that the State Department regulates, military applications, so DATC has that. And so and we're not going to go after companies that are operating pursuant to a State Department license. Okay, so the Department of State has authority over over military So if for some reason those are those are classified as military because of the sophistication of the technology, then that would be the State Department. Yes, there's a there's a product commodity jurisdiction process that Tanner is probably familiar with uh, as well. But um, that that can be a process too where the Department of State and the Department of Commerce are going to discuss how a particular good should be regulated. Should it be a commerce list or the State Department? The Treasury Department, we will defer to the Department of Commerce and Department of State if they authorize a particular type of high technology. So there's a license. Well, they are if they're dealing with the U.S. or to control Yes, and if that, com that company is certainly obligated, and then if that company abroad is dealing with a controlled good, if it's dealing with a controlled good of U.S. origin, 